Hello, everybody, and welcome to another very special Cat's Cradle. They're all very special, and I love them very much. It's me, Cat, the baby. Wah! Today, we have Kirsten. No surprise there. Kirsten's here. I am here. Hello, everybody. We have Kathleen. I'm also here. We have Nick. We don't have Nick. We don't have Nick. Nick's a little under the weather. Tell me we still have Dylan, though. Do we still have Dylan? Oh, wait, me? Yeah. Oh, sorry. I got a little <laughs> lost there. <laughs> we found <No>. Dylan. <laughs> it's the authentic I'm experience. <laughs> Who are you and why have you brought me here? Because this week on Cat's Cradle, we're going to be talking about world building. Mm-hmm. It's kind of an important part of RPG design that I don't talk about often, despite how much I love doing it. And uh, since we have someone that I widely regard as being just an expert at it on our call, I figured, you know, let's uh, make Dylan do all the hard work. <laughs> it's it's a shame this isn't a visual media, so you couldn't watch the, like, cascade of different expressions I made. <laughs> From shock to embarrassed, all shucksing, I was really kind of hamming it up. <laughs> Listener, you'll just have to imagine it for yourself. You'll just have to imagine it. Or if you want to look at Dylan's face, check us out on our stream on Sunday nights. Also this. It's not hard. Just watch the stream. Then you can see Dylan's face and all the faces they make. Especially the ones I make anytime Bill talks. <laughs> which is when I make the most faces. Look, my favorite thing about Bill is that uh, I can never be the problem child, no matter how much of a brat I am. <laughs> I will always at least be silver metal problem child. You know, you bring up an interesting point, Kat. You somehow <laughs> managed to be more the problem child in your own show than mine. <laughs> no! I'm good. I'm a good baby. <laughs> well, you keep me in line, so... <laughs> so... Welcome to Cat's Cradle. As I mentioned in the intro, Nick is feeling a little under the weather, and um, we're all still rooting for you, bud. And I think it's time for us to talk about world building. This is something that a lot of RPGs pay a lot of attention to. A lot of, especially big name RPGs, really pride themselves on their in-depth world building. You see a lot of games that kind of take place in someone else's world, maybe fan games, but a lot of the big... RPGs also have a big world that they've established. And world building can be something as large as having maps drawn out, having communities and countries and entire civilizations built, or it can just be the facts of the planet that cause the mechanics to happen. It's an extremely broad subject, which is why I have struggled so hard to kind of get this first handhold on it. I would like to say it's a shame we don't have Nick because I love Nick's world building. I've worked on projects with Nick. You could describe Nick as being, uh, how would I describe Nick's world building? I'm being aside from good. Oh, good. Definitely good. Relentlessly self-serving. Mm-hmm. Nick is absolutely just shamelessly all about the things he's all about. And any story he makes is about the things he's all about. And if you're not on board with bugs and robots, you can get the fuck out. Nick doesn't care. <laughs> hey, a common interest. Yeah. It's genuinely very fun uh, working on projects with Nick because uh, 
He definitely has things he's very passionate about and he puts them in there with no reservations. And that's something I'm always a little envious of. Sometimes it's jazz. Sometimes it's jazz. He made a jazz and kung fu movie inspired heroic core attack. Oh, that was good. Yeah. That was fun to play. That's our Nick. So probably the first question is, how does this start? How do you have a thought and all of a sudden, sometime later, you're like, oh, I have developed a world. I have plucked it out of the ether. Did you do it on purpose? Is there, yeah, how, how do, how start? Is it on purpose that you start? Those sorts of questions. Mm, that's a good one. I really like weird magic systems. Usually what happens is it's not entirely on purpose, but I get a weird idea for how a magic should work. And then I must task myself with building a world around that nonsense I've created. How about for Dylan? Yeah. How, Dylan, how, what, how do you get embroiled in this process? That's a fairly large question, especially considering how long I've been working on the same world now. Mm. I can sort of track back my habit in world creation back a pretty long ways like years and years at this point, even way before I started playing D&D. Because I, I have what the kids call a problem with maladaptive daydreaming. Ah. Which tends to be a place where a lot of my ideas for world building comes from. Um, so a lot of it is just like internal escapism that starts to eventually outgrow just my own personal uh, needs and become something... Uh, too big to be contained within that uh, more narrow framework of just me daydreaming and eventually grows into something where it ends up, you know, in a notebook or a sketchbook somewhere. Being an art kid growing up, it was a lot of drawing characters and stories and notebooks, especially when I was supposed to be doing other things. And naturally just like getting obsessively focused on particular details or, or texture of those ideas. And... As soon as I started running D&D &D recreationally, it was just like a natural fit. It clicked perfectly. And I found the point where it was all, it became world building as opposed to storytelling was when I just explicitly was taking a game system, looking at the lore and was changing more than I was keeping. And then eventually just decided, you know what, screw it. We'll just, let's just make it entirely from scratch. Cool. So this is not the first time that your daydreaming has outgrown the vessel it was poured into because rather recently it also outgrew D&D. &D. Yeah, yeah, completely. I mean, it started with the world that we were playing in and now it's spilled over to making a game system strictly built to suit the world. Which I'm tremendously excited for. You and me both. <laughs> I'm excited too. A lot of recent breakthroughs on that. So to throw a false dichotomy into the mix, it kind of seems like Kat has like, okay, I have an idea of how a thing works and I want to build a world around it. Dylan, if I'm hearing them correctly, is saying like, okay, I have a story that I want to tell. I have things that I want to do. And the things that I have pre-built for me aren't good enough to do it. So I'm going to build better ones. It's a pretty accurate, um, accurate analysis, to be honest, because almost the entirety of what led to what is now the world that 
the edge of the world stream takes place in came from a place of just the ideas I had would not work within Forgotten Realms lore. And I liked the ideas more than I liked the lore of the book. And so it was pretty easy to just take the book and put it on my bookshelf and and give it a couple uh, kind pats and then never open it again. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. And I guess I'm very much the kind of person who, metaphorically speaking, sees peaches on special and decides to make peach cobbler out of that, as opposed to, like, setting out with a grand plan. I usually, like, get some small handhold in what I'm doing and then work from there. For building worlds, is there a part of world building that you find more difficult for yourself that is sort of the last hurdle you have before you feel your world is kind of complete? <laughs> ooh, ooh. I'll let you take that one first, Kat. Commerce. <laughs> ah. <laughs> I have no okay. head for it. I don't think about it normally. So if someone were like, what's the major export here? I'd be like, ah, I don't know, fish probably. But <laughs> like, I can get my head around what resources are available in an area because the natural world is something I can think about. But like um, in sort of symphonies, when Nick asked me what the currency was called, I was like, uh, help. Hey, I, don't th- I don't think we have a name. There isn't a name for currency yet. <laughs> it's big nerd dollars. It's big nerd dollars, because that's what Nick said. Big nerd, yeah. (laughs) I've got no head for commerce. I never have. And so that has ended up actually kind of developing the world in Amelta in its own way. Like, you kind of have this almost anarcho-agrarian kind of set of societies that don't interact with each other as much as they once did in a lot of places in Amelta. Yeah. And... That ends up being a flavor thing built entirely out of a weakness of yours, which is interesting. (laughs) Oops. Dylan, same question. Yes. If I were to put a pin on world building weakness, it is not a particular part of world building. It is my inability to actually like pick a lane to follow and complete. Easily the thing I struggle with the most is... I am easily distracted. And so a lot of times I end up with a great many incomplete concepts that remain incomplete for a very long time until I am forced to complete them out of necessity. So it ends up being a lot of stuff that like is just thrown out there at random and very few things ever get enough like attention to be truly done, which to the second part of that question about when you know the the world building is complete is I don't think you do. I don't think it ever is done. I think you just have to accept that there's a point at which any changes you make won't matter, which I haven't reached yet. So we'll see when that happens. Okay. So in that case, since obviously like a world to complete in its full fruition, the way that earth as a world is like some sort of Herculean deific uncompletable task. So I do get this little bit of a sense of like, okay, I am developing the things that I need to do in order to make this function for the stories that I'm telling or the games that I'm building. So what are some of those very important parts that like do need to be there? That could often be debatable. It really, again, it comes down to a number of factors between not only 
how you engage with that world that you made and how, but also how the, the people you're playing with are going to engage with it. And you can get a little flexible with that. You know, if you have players who are constantly revisiting the same types of things versus a different group may find themselves leaning in a completely different direction. I mean, to Kat's point, it sounds like the world of Amilta is one where you all have not found yourselves in need of engaging with commerce. And that informs, you know, a part of that world now and a part of the world building that went into it versus, you know, I found so much of what I've written for the Bailheart setting specifically written for the purposes of tailoring the needs of the players between Bill being a player who's very interested in these kind of small details about very particular types of things that led to a lot of unique, characterful world building in order to give him stuff to engage with. Um, Same thing for, you know, I basically wrote the entirety of what is the winter court and the, the greater four courts entirely in response to Kat choosing to play a fae. And beyond just individual character stuff, the way you guys play has led me to a place where I don't really have to worry about establishing a lot about, you know, religion or big forces of evil in the world, because that isn't what we're playing. And those are big picture ideas that I probably would need to write for a different group of players. So it's kind of something that you tailor as you go. The only things that I would say are like hard necessities or just, this is where it's kind of personal, but I think there's a couple things that I really like to focus on, which is giving the world building for whoever's engaging with the world building, a sense of immediate close range surroundings, something that is just a day's journey away to talk about, and then something that's on the other side of the world that can be referenced. Because I think those are simple things that can make a world feel really full if you can say, this is what's here, this is what's over there, and this is what's way over there. And those are only a couple things, and that makes the world feel very big, even if there's nothing else in between those things that you've described or written. Sort of define a sense of scale. Yeah, exactly. Whereas I've got my habit, which is, um, I was for the longest time a fantasy writer. I have been an editor of fantasy short fiction as well, but I think a lot of my world building is based on what an everyday person typically encounters and how they react to that. Amilta is a world where rangers are seen with some degree of reverence because danger is kind of omnipresent. There are monsters around and there are ways that ordinary people can escape them by living in safer places or less safe places. But rangers are the ones who can defeat them. And that's... At least the way it shook out in Amilta. Although I, I'm always really cognizant of what normal people feel like, especially when confronted with the supernatural aspects of a setting. When either of you uh, start engaging with the world and building a world, are there things that you feel really paint the picture of the world for you? Are there key things that you're like, this is what helps define a feel of a world for me. I always kind of start with how magic works. So to me, once I've figured out how magic works and how it fits into society, I've done my my platform. I've done my foundation and I can build on that pretty comfortably. 
Yeah. So, I mean, for, for me, it's the furthest from cats as possible, which is for me, I feel like the thing that makes me immediately start to understand a world is it's politics. <laughs> like, the exact opposite of magic is the ways in which politics in the sense of not just individual people, but how groups of people either dispute or agree or the messy places in between especially in a big world where there are numerous groups with their own interests, those complicated relationships on a larger scale, for me, I, f I feel like are the thing that get me like really thinking about the world and how people probably experience it, especially considering so much of that has to do with differing perspectives and how people could just have vastly different ideas of the world based on just the politics of where they're from. It's part of the reason why the world I've built is one that is chock-a-block with different countries and nations and, and groups of power that are in one form of dispute with each other or another at, at all times. Actually, if I can steal the reins, it's my turn to ask questions. It's my turn. Okay. So that actually makes it into the prototype of the Bailheart game that you're working on because one of the major building blocks of a character is their banner or where they're from. Was this like a deliberate politics or what I do best, let's build this out of politics? Or did it arise out of looking at the setting and realizing that was kind of one of the major focus points of it? It was far more the latter where I did realize one of the most important features of the world was strictly just where people are from matters a lot. It changes a huge amount. And in recent shifts in how the world is structured, it even changes, you know, native language and communication. When I first built Bailheart, I had built it with the expectation that there was a universal language on the continent. And that has now since evolved and changed to be a little more like the real world in that that's just unrealistic for everyone across a continent much bigger than even all of North America to all speak the same language universally, despite having vastly different histories and backgrounds. Yeah, it's the world as it was coming into clarity and focus really made that something that if I didn't make it part of the game, it was a waste of potential <laughs> to not have someone's place of origin matter a lot to their character. And I thought that was just an interesting thing to mechanically reinforce because it was so deeply rooted to the world building. At least in my opinion, you can kind of always tell games that are built to a world as opposed to the other way around. You can always tell a game that was built to tell a specific story apart from one that was built to give context to rules that were already created. Yeah, I I definitely agree there because I've picked up world building light games in the past and read through them and they're they're very interesting, but it definitely puts a lot of the work on the player to make the world happen. And I suppose that's the reason to build a world in the first place, right? Is that improvisation is hard. <laughs> improvisation is hard. Storytelling is hard. And everyone's going to have a slightly different idea of how to come at it and where to go at it. Like the scariest thing to me as a writer or like a composer or whatever is a blank page, whether literal or metaphorical. So having a good world to build off of, I think is 
a huge part of what can make an RPG successful for me. Hmm. And you're definitely not the only one. And like speaking of blank page, when it comes from taking like the concepts of the world and actually writing it down, do you have a process that that you generally follow or does it change depending on the type of world? Oof. Uh, uh, um, well, I think I've, I've briefly described my writing method when it came to adapting to the need of improv on the previous cat, Cat's Cradle. And <laughs> I've already put myself on blast as uh, writing like a crazy person where nothing makes sense and there's no process. I just can't maintain focus on a single idea long enough to like genuinely sit down and try to, to write something with purpose. It is all very intuitive. And so it mm. tends to be a bit meandering. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why it's taken three years to write the world to a point where I can, you know, run a game like this. Because uh, boy, do I not even know how the hell this works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. The funny thing is usually writing down world details is not a first draft thing for me. Usually what happens is I'll make a couple sparse point form notes, but I just kind of develop the world in broad strokes enough that I can understand it off the top of my head. And then I write my first draft. And then if I need to just get into concrete detail about what's where and what's going on, in the editing phase, that's when I will write those notes. But typically speaking, I just kind of uh, keep it upstairs until I have to. And I think that in both cases, both of your responses do tie back to that thing that we were saying earlier in this discussion is that the things that you write about the world, the way that you develop a world is a reactive thing for both of you. It is... The details up here are the details that you need for the story that you're telling or for the game that you're playing or the game that you're developing. Yeah. I I will say dovetailing off of that and kind of going into a little more in depth to to actually even describe my method in in any way, um, it usually just is a mad dash of getting hit with ideas constantly that just end up as bullet points in numerous different notebooks that slowly start to get reduced down into more concrete ideas over time. They go from broad ideas to hyper-specific. Like, I have notes about brands of alcohol sold in parts of the world that no one has been to um, that are in my notes somewhere that maybe at some point will make it into something meaningful and it's just getting hit with these ideas constantly. It's I, I'm forced into this position of just having to take listing ideas down perpetually until eventually I can go through them and start making something uh, and crafting something with them. It's, I just Your process in a lot of ways, and this isn't the first time we've talked about this, is so, so different from mine. Yeah. It's so different. It's honestly comical. Like it's polar opposites. <laughs> I'm just like a just like a silly toddler playing freely and <laughs> mashing things together and seeing what works. <laughs> and, and I'm over here plagued by ideas every moment <laughs> I'm conscious that I am just forced to have to write them down. And what's fascinating to me is that they really seem to be just every sort of ideas. Yes. <laughs> For me... When I am developing ideas for a setting or for 
a game or for a short story or that sort of thing, I, like Dylan, have a very stream of consciousness process. But like Kat, I tend to start with a particular small detail and sort of latch things onto that at a fantasy setting that sort of started with developing the wildlife or the little uh, bit of Velt stories that I ran. Some of the first ideas were the thought of like, oh, I just want to hang out around a seasonal wetland for a while. Like one of those things on the Serengeti where like it's just a completely different landscape at different times of the year. And like having that one detail and then attaching things on it until it had the stuff that I needed in order to get the story done. I usually start with magic just because I read a lot of fantasy. And Mm -hmm. to me, that's always kind of a defining trait of the world and at least the fantasy I like. Right. Most of the stories of yours that I've read also have some sort of psychology that they want to explore with the magic. Yeah, magic lives in your brain and in your heart and in your feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the first published pieces of yours that I read um, talks about a sort of shared dreamscape with webs of ideas and connections between people and, like, people who sort of walked these webs through other people's dreams and stuff. Oh, yeah. Now I know which one you're talking about. It was also me being very, very Catholic because it was a hell story. It was. Yeah, I, I I do tend to get real weird with it. I get very, very weird with it. And I'm I'm not good at um I'm not good at epic fantasy worlds for the reason that I'm so focused on getting weird that by the time it comes to concrete details about how the world works in a normal mundane sense, things like politics and commerce, my brain's like, uh-uh, I want everyone to be summoning snails. And it's like, well, Kat, <laughs> you can't always you can't always be precious, Cat, and that's kind of where I struggle. Can can I can I hit you guys with kind of like a hot like go for it like please bit of a crazy piece of trivia? So I I think that the world of Baleheart as a like fictional setting and what it spells for being able to tell stories within it, especially as like collaborative storytelling through through game is is probably the best thing I've ever written from like a creative writing uh, standpoint. The hot gossip, the crazy fact is that I have never actually liked fantasy. You never. <laughs> it's it's funny because Bailhart is very epic fantasy. It's so weird to me that after years of doing like creative stuff with like art and like idea crafting and wanting to do like game design fantasy was like the last thing I cared about so low on my priority list like I don't read fantasy I'm not big into fantasy movies and I have somehow found myself in a position where the best thing I've ever made is a fantasy world and I don't know how it happened yeah it's it's epic fantasy if ever I've read it and I grew up reading it so so I just think that's really funny because I've always been much more interested in sci-fi. It is. And I actually think I'd probably do fucking terrible (laughs) at writing (laughs) sci-fi. All the really good sci-fi writers I know are very, very technical folks. Yeah, I don't know if I could have that focus. 
I've read some excellent science fiction because I used to be a speculative fiction editor. One of my favorite pieces was, it was science fiction, but the science was economics. So it was a piece of economical science fiction about the end of the world. Timeline by Kevin Cockle. It was in on spec for the apocalypse issue in 2012. It was fantastic. Um, but I remember that being just a revelation to me because like science fiction can be any science, huh? You can take any of the sciences and turn it into a fiction, huh? (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to pose a question, if that is okay. I mean, I muscled my way in and did one earlier. I don't see why you can't. Yeah. I feel like this is like sort of the elephant in the room question for anything regarding world building. And that is the obligatory point at which we have to discuss inspiration. Yeah. All right. So I'm just curious to know, like, I know from reading the description in the the front of the heroic chord rule book the inspiration for that particular game but on the whole i mean there's there's a much broader question about like what inspires you to even do world building or what tends to be a reoccurring thing you touch on in in the the worlds you do make cuz i know i've got some some stuff to pull from yeah huh One thing that I always return to in my world building and something that is very much a cornerstone of any world I put together is very much religion and alternative approaches to religion. Because in a lot of fantasy fiction, gods are kind of an immutable and very concrete aspect of life in a way that they are not in our world. Mm -hmm. And so religion is the kind of thing I'm always telling stories about. It's the kind of thing that worms its way into my world building and becomes a central concept. And it might have to do with my religious upbringing and then my becoming just a witch type person. (laughs) But whether it's a world where the rain contains the ghost of an insane dead sea god trying to get people to ruin the world or the one where all trials were done by a combat with uh, special priests and priestesses who were channeling ancient extinct animals. Uh... Yeah, it always comes down to kind of forming religious structures. That's something that's always very exciting to me and something that forms an important part of what I do. Huh. Yeah, that's super fascinating. Inspiration is such an interesting thing to talk about, and I always find myself really interested to hear what inspires people to make the things that they make, especially in how it also connects with my philosophy on the borrowing or stealing of ideas or changing of ideas, because I think that's just Mm -hmm. an important part of the creative process. Yeah. Like for myself, I am, for better or worse, like a deeply transparent person in my tastes, primarily due to my like adolescence and young adulthood being a just absolute weeb, like through and through, like just entirely too much anime. And it is it is bled into every facet of of how I uh, engage with fiction and how I write my own. And. It's part of the reason why, like, I I really enjoy like uh, hard magic systems, like like with very strict rules. Yes, please. Where there's like a structure to it. It's very organized. It's methodical. That kind of stuff really speaks to me. It, just today, I was watching one of my favorite like representations of what I think is phenomenal world building. Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind is like mm. one of my favorite movies of all time because the everything about that world is just so inherent 
Like they don't bother to really waste time trying to explain things to you. They just let the world be in a way that's very textured and real. Yeah, I love that. Something about it just like clicked with me. And that was how I wanted things to feel. Just like very, the texture is the best way I can describe it. And it really mm. feeds into how I try and make worlds or, or write my own fiction. Is to f I want it to be something you could almost reach out and touch. You could feel it. Yeah. If we're going to talk specifically about inspirations, one of my major, major inspirations is the 90s fantasy anime Slayers. Yeah. Is it good? I don't know. I haven't rewatched it. But one thing I will always remember is that there was an online spell book that you could find. It was fan-made that explained every spell that was ever used in the series, exactly mm -hmm. how it worked, uh, exactly what powers it called on, etc., and that was never information that was really elucidated in the anime or the light novels. It's just that it's so internally consistent that a fan who is paying attention can put together an omnibus like this. God, that's so cool. <laughs> that's so yeah. cool. And that's something I've always strived for. It's like magic that has rules, that follows its own rules, that someone who's paying attention can list. And that's always been something that's that I'm very, very passionate and excited about, even though the 90s were a very long time ago. God, yeah. I I've always found that, like, for its strengths and shortcomings, that's always something I felt like anime has excelled in, is those kinds of things. And maybe that just has to do with, like, there being such a specific, like, reoccurring genre of, like, power fantasy hmm. and... Always wanting to make a, like, come up with your own cool version of the, you know, special way that your world is different and differentiates itself from every other thing out uh, at the same time by having your own power system and your own rules and its own quirks to it. And that's maintained for years in the, in the medium. And having watched so much, especially in the 2000s when it was just, like, rife with it, um, it's a very deeply like rooted part of how I uh, something very deeply rooted in how I enjoy fiction. And it's it's found its way into my world building. It's found its way into the Baleheart game system as well, where like, for example, to, to quote a, a very particular thing, I I kind of have borrowed from just anime in general is the the common trope of of being able to perceive or sense the actual danger of another person, like the threat mm. they pose to you without them being hostile. Just like this sort of like unspoken ability to like spider sense out when someone is no good or they want, they're, they're stronger than you, they're more dangerous than you. It's a very anime thing of like, ooh, this person's got got killing intent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A an, an ocular pat down, if you will. An, yeah. An ocular pat down, yes. And that's, that's a thing I've always liked, and I never really thought too much of it until I started writing the game system for the Bailheart world. And I was like, what if I make a mechanical thing that just makes this a thing you can engage with as part of the game? And how does that affect the world and that kind of stuff? And that's just, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of losing the thread a little bit, but it's 
stuff like that is why I just, I love borrowing ideas like that, like broader ideas like that, where you can just take something and not feel bad about saying like, well, this is a cool thing. So why don't I just do it? Yeah. To circle back to my dear friend who isn't here, to circle back to Nick, the word I was looking for was self-indulgent. And there is something so, so beautiful about when you're doing your world building, just being self-indulgent. Yes. It's part of why I'm such a big fan of Nick's work is because like he writes what he likes. Deal with it. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't have a head for, uh, for commerce. So I tend to leave it out. I like sweeping vistas. I like nature. I like people being nice to each other. And that's kind of. Hey, there's something earnest and really enjoyable about engaging with a piece of media or, or fiction or, or anything really where you can tell it's made from a place of earnesty and, and like that the person who made it loves what it is yeah. and the parts of what it is. There's something that comes through in good work where you can tell that. Right, right, right. Like, is Metal Gear a clusterfuck? Absolutely. Can you tell that Hideo Kojima absolutely loves war, nanomachines, and butts? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You can tell that he he wrote the game when he was uh, watching the news and getting just personally freaked out about the idea of nukes. Yeah. You can see parts of the creator within the content of the story, and that's cool. That's cool. Like, even the bad Metal Gear games are genuine. Yeah. That actually brings a point that I, it's not a question so much as just, I think, an interesting thing to discuss is the idea of like world building in a vacuum. Like, I don't know if you've ever met anyone who's trying to like build like a quote unquote, like perfect world. Because I've met a couple people, especially in D&D, who are trying to make this like hermetically sealed, like perfect, causally consistent world. Oh, you mean the church of Neo Gary Gygax? Yeah, where just like everything has to be internally consistent at all times. And mm-hmm. those are always the people I find that just like give up eventually and stop trying. And I don't know if it's just because I don't know if they're ever self-aware enough to realize that what they're doing is not good or if they just get too tired. Well, it's far too much work. It's far too much work to do everything. That is an intellectual exercise on par with the study of physics in the real world. If you want to have something work completely, self-sufficiently, completely consistently, that's like a lifetime's intellectual output of dozens of people. Yeah, but it ends up always being so dry as well, I find. Is, mm-hmm. And is it even possible to create a world that's completely internally uh, complete, so like, shall I'll use for lack of a better word, or, or consistent, when you're in creating a media that people are going to interact with, the world is going to be a bit different for every single person who plays it because their journey through it is going to look different than the next group's journey through it and that kind of thing. So you can't ever foresee everybody's individual journey. Yeah, it's kind of GM railroading on the world building level, mm-hmm. which when you put it that way, sounds like a bummer. Yeah, it doesn't sound great. And I've I've played with a couple people who are like that, where ultimately it ends up trickling down into gameplay where they become the type of GM that says no more than yes, because they're trying to constantly keep the world consistent in their head. And 
players are never going to be consistent with that. So like Kirsten said, like, especially when you're making a world uh, or any type of uh, fiction that is uh, going to be engaged with by, by people as play where they are part of the process, where they're not just strictly observing it, but being part of it, you'll never be able to maintain that level of internal consistency. And the few times I've played with people like that, it's, it's just unpleasant. Bummer. God, that sounds like a massive bummer. It very much is, which is why I always suggest write things that are dumb and don't make sense because it's fun. <laughs> that's beautiful. Maybe that's the like thing that you just have to keep telling that perfectionist side of yourself. You know what? Just fucking stop at some point. Let it be what it is. If you round off all of the sharp edges, you end up with a sphere, which, I don't know. You can play basketball with. You can play basketball with it, but if you were trying to play, like, epic fantasy, epic fantasy isn't basketball. That'd make a great t-shirt. <laughs> now I want to write a micro game that is, <laughs> that is an epic fantasy game decided by basketball. So it's an epic fantasy game, but you just play a game of horse instead of rolling dice? Oh, no, you definitely play a game of horse, and that's how combat is resolved. Rolling dice is free throws. <laughs> There's some people who I think would really like this. And it's like, <laughs> okay, I have a three in this skill. I get to make three free throws, and if any of them go in, I'm good. I see. Would I play this? No, I'm garbage at basketball, despite my height. <laughs> Do I like this idea? Yeah. <laughs> Sounds pretty rad, actually. I like it. And of course, when you're building a game like this, you could just have an epic fantasy game about dragons and kings and what have you. But a basketball-themed magic fantasy, wouldn't that be more fun? Wouldn't that mm -hmm. be more expressive? I mean, I would definitely read a story about a basketball-focused fantasy world. I would very much like that. I do want to see a knight's duel that takes place on a basketball court. <laughs> but also there's a wizard on the sideline casting spells on the knights that are playing basketball. Oh, I like that. Like the Merlin wizard's duel, but with basketball involved. I think that'd be very okay. cool. <laughs> so, so here's how this works. <laughs> the wizard gets his own ball. Ooh. He can throw it at people or the ball as he see, sees fit. Uh, now, that's just a recipe to whip basketballs at your friends. That's not okay. Those things hurt. That's like a mixture between dodgeball and basketball. Yeah, you've just made mean dodgeball. <laughs> and listeners, this is how world building can start. Thank you for saving me, Kirsten. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to lose my mind for a second. So. I've already lost mine, if that helps. So, I mean, like, if I were to sum up the things that we've been talking about, or I guess mostly Kat and Dylan have been talking about over the course of this episode, I would kind of say that like world building is a search for texture, but the best world building is world building that serves a function for your story or for your game. You don't have to build the parts of the world that you aren't going to use, but it's nice to know that they're there to let the listener to let your players know that they're there so that they can understand scale a little bit. And like, you have to find some sort of kernel that 
you love, whether that's magic for a cat, whether that's plants for me, whether that's politics and the way that people interact for Dylan's world, let that shape some of the things that you talk about. But don't try to just build up an entire world from scratch. That is literally a deity tier endeavor that you would try to put yourself off with. And I'm pretty sure, listener, that you, like us, are mortals. Mm-hmm. World building is a rocket ship that can take you to exciting new places, and the fuel is love. Aww. <laughs> That's adorable. If you try to put obligation in the fuel chamber, it will blow up and you will die in space, alone and cold. <laughs> <laughs> well, closing remarks from me following that incredibly unsettling and, and somewhat sense-making analogy. All I can really say is if you are a person who's genuinely interested in starting to look at making your own worlds, I really want to impart like one particular piece of advice that I think um, it is how I ended up doing what I do now. And that is to feel okay starting with something that isn't yours and changing it slowly but surely until you feel like you understand how world building works. A lot of how I learned about world building was from writing or thinking about inserting my own fiction into existing fictions or bending existing fictions in interesting ways until eventually I found myself making my own fiction. And that taught me a lot about what makes good world building and what makes good bad world building by borrowing from other people who had already been doing it before me. That's like the only piece of sage advice I can really give because I still don't really know what I'm doing, but I know that that is where I started. <laughs> and if anything I make is good, it's because I spent a lot of time changing other people's work before making my own. Mm. Good artists borrow, great artists steal. <laughs> As the old adage goes. Is this the time where I say thank you all for doing a cradle with me? Mm-hmm. Thank you all for doing a cradle with me. It was lovely. It is very informative to hear how people approach, you know, building a world or engage with, with said world. I'm glad. Hey, listener, thanks for listening to us. We love you. We do love you. Listener, by the way, if you aren't a mortal, you do have to let us know about that. You have to let us know about that. You do have to let us know about that is the thing. And how can they let us know about that? Well, honestly, they're some kind of divinity. They have many means at their disposal. But the easiest ones <laughs> are hooking <laughs> us up on Twitter at Peach Garden RPGs or using the email form on our website, peachgardengames.com. It does not take any kind of divinity to find Dylan at lasers with a Z underscore forever on Twitter yes, or yes, yes. at TFTT underscore presents on Twitter, which is where our Sunday night show is. Correct. You can see us on Twitch if you've ever thought to yourself, I wonder what this idiot's idiot face looks like. <laughs> <laughs> Referring to me, of course, if you refer to Dylan that way, I'll, I'll kill you. I will fight you with my fists. Or you may be wondering, geez, they talk a lot about Bill. What's a Bill? If you watch the stream, you'll know. <laughs> Does that sound like a threat listener? 
I've watched the streams. It has. It, 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 it's a threat. It's explicitly it's a, a threat. threat. Thank you, listener. Thank you. This has been a threat. This has been. It's not a threat. We promise. Maybe. Maybe a little, but. <laughs> Maybe a little bit. Maybe we'll see you on bit, the flip so. side. That is a threat. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Be gay. Roll dice. An LGBTQIA actual play podcast network. Rules light. Gay heavy. Knees weak. Mom's spaghetti. Listen to us truly earn the explicit podcast tag on Roll Gay Role Play. Where we roll with sass and kick some ass. Our dysfunctional party isn't afraid to get our hands dirty. Feel free to interpret that however you want. So violence is on your gay agenda. Come join our campaign at Roll Gay Roleplay. And, and may Yonsei be, be with you. you.